There's one thing that I love about Ben Shapiro is he just calls it how he sees it. And he's so good as just with these debates and these questions and how he just completely and utterly destroys the narrative. He basically just says what we're all thinking. And he does it in a very educated, empowered way. So watch how he destroys this liberal congresswoman with regarding race and everything else. So enjoy. Shapiro, you talked about white privilege. And um, just this week, I had a conversation with Rachel Lazar, who's done some work, um, a Jewish um, American woman who's done some work on this area, as well as uh, having extensive conversations um, with Dr. Greg Parks of Wake Forest University, who's also talked quite a bit about um, critical race theory. Um, and it's, it's my understanding that white privilege is not telling individuals that they cannot speak, but it is a term for societal privilege that individuals have as a benefit of their white skin. Um, and I don't think that, um, and I think universities would be remiss to then say that because you're white, you're not allowed to say anything that's critical of white people. I didn't know that white privilege actually went into that sphere. My understanding is it's just, and the issue is, is that white privilege makes people uncomfortable to talk about the societal privilege that they have. Well, what I say on campuses all the time is if you want to cite instances of racism that we can all find and fight together, that's something that I'm more than willing to stand next to you and fight because that's obviously stuff that we should fight together. But when you just say that there is a white privilege out there in the ether and that by dint of birth, your skin color generates for you an advantage, what you're really saying to people is that you, your view is less valuable because you have not experienced what I've experienced. And that is an identity argument. That's a character argument. That's not a rational political argument that can actually be, be taken on in any way. That's, that's, it's more of a, it's more of a cudgel and a club than it is an attempt to open a discussion. Well, I think it's a um, demonstrable evidence that um, through society's demographics that um, being white has societal privileges that being black does not. But I well, we, we can am talk very about how interested. That manifests because that's I'm also interested in what you just said now is that you would stand next to anyone who has this. So, Mr. Shapiro, my question to you is, um, for Ms. Ms. Dumston, the tying the noose around the campus and writing messages that target African-American young students, would you consider that hate speech, and then would you stand next to her and fight for her? As I say, I would, it, this is the first time I'm hearing about it, honestly. But it, Really? What, yeah. Um, but but from, from hearing about it, maybe because it's local. I mean, I'm from L.A. Um, but in any case, um, I'm more than happy, more than happy to, to stand alongside her and, and fight whatever group was responsible for this. Not, not only more than happy, I mean, you're talking about the alt-right. Again, I was the number one target of anti-Semitic harassment from the alt-right last year. So I'm more than happy to do all that. And I, I think there's one more distinction that has to be made. When we talk about cases like, like Taylor's, they're horrific, and the administration is siding with Taylor. The administration is doing the right thing by Taylor, or trying to do the right thing by Taylor, as they should be. And I think that we need to make a distinction between cases where the administration is actively participating in the suppression of speech and cases in which the administration is trying to do the right thing as a, as in, order to, in order to make people, in order to punish people for uh, application of crime. Gentlemen, Mr. Shapiro. It's an honor to testify. It's an honor to testify before you here today. The reason that I'm with you is that I speak on dozens of college campuses every year, so I have some firsthand experience with the anti-First Amendment activities 
that have been taking place on, on the college campuses. I've encountered anti-free speech measures, administrative cowardice, even physical violence at campuses ranging from California State University at Los Angeles to University of Wisconsin at Madison, which is driving the legislation uh, that Ms. Demings was talking about, uh, to Penn State University to UC Berkeley, and I am not alone. In order to understand what's been going on at some of our college campuses, it's necessary to explore the ideology that provides the impetus for a lot of the protesters who violently obstruct events, pull fire alarms, assault professors and even other students, and the impetus for administrators who all too often humor these protesters. Free speech is under assault because of a three-step argument made by the advocates and justifiers of violence. The first step is they say that the validity or invalidity of an argument can be judged solely by the ethnic, sexual, racial, or cultural identity of the person making the argument. The second step is that they claim those who say otherwise are engaging in what they call verbal violence. And the final step is they conclude that physical violence is sometimes justified in order to stop such verbal violence. So let's examine each of these three steps in turn. First, the philosophy of intersectionality. This philosophy now dominates college campuses as well as a large segment, unfortunately, of today's Democratic Party and suggests that straight white Americans are inherently the beneficiaries of white privilege and therefore cannot speak on certain policies since they have not experienced what it's like to be black or Hispanic or gay or transgender or a woman. This philosophy ranks the value of a view not based on the logic or merit of the view, but on the level of victimization in American society experienced by the person espousing the view. Therefore, if you're an LGBT black woman, your view of American society is automatically more valuable than that of a straight white male. The next step in the logic is obvious. If a straight white male or anybody else who ranks lower on the victimhood scale says something contrary to the viewpoint of the higher ranking intersectional, intersectionality identity, that person has engaged in a microaggression. As NYU social psychologist Jonathan Haidt writes, microaggressions are small actions or word choices that seem on their face to have no malicious intent, but that are thought of as a kind of violence nonetheless. You don't have to actively say anything insulting to microaggress. Somebody merely needs to take offense. If, for example, you say that society ought to be colorblind, you're microaggressing certain identity groups who have been victimized by a non-colorblind society. Note, microaggressions, as the name suggests, are not merely insults. They are aggressions. They are the equivalent to physical violence. Just two weeks ago, psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett of Northeastern University published an essay in the New York Times suggesting that words should be seen as physical violence because they can cause stress, and stress causes physical harm. Thus, Feldman suggested it is reasonable, scientifically speaking, to ban or restrict speech you do not like at your school. This is both inane and dangerous. That's because it leads to the final logical step. Words you don't like deserve to be fought physically. When I spoke at California State University LA, one professor threatened students who sponsored me by offering to fight them. He then posted a slogan on the door of his office stating, the best response to microaggression is macroaggression. As Haidt writes, this is why the idea that speech is violence is so dangerous. It tells the members of a generation already beset by anxiety and depression that the world is a far more violent and threatening place than it really is. It tells them that words, ideas, speakers can literally kill them. Even worse, at a time of rapidly rising political polarization in the United States, it helps a small subset of that generation justify political violence. Indeed, protesters all too often engage in physically violent disruption when they believe their identity group is under verbal attack by someone, usually conservative, but not always. Not only do some administrators look the other way, at Middlebury College, Cal State LA, Berkeley, Evergreen, actual crimes were committed and almost nobody has been arrested but they actively forbid events from moving forward, creating a heckler's veto. The notion that if you are physically violent enough, you can get administrators to kowtow to you, to bow before you, by canceling an event you disagree with altogether. All of this destroys free speech. But just as importantly, it turns students into snowf snowflakes, 
craven and pathetic, looking for an excuse to be offended so they can earn points in the intersectionality Olympics and then use those points as a club with which to beat opponents. A healthy nation requires an emotionally and intellectually vigorous population ready to engage in open debate at all times. Shielding college students from opposing viewpoints makes them simultaneously weaker and more dangerous. We must fight that process at every step. And that begins by acknowledging that whatever we think about America and where we stand, we must agree on this fundamental principle. All of our views should be judged on their merits, not on the color or sex or sexual orientation of the speaker, and those views should never be banned on the grounds that they offend someone. Thanks so much. Uh, Mr. Shapiro, Shapiro. you an agitator? Not as far as I'm I'm aware. (laughs) So this, I think that some of what's been said does miniskirt the debate. Um, you know, Mr. Krishnamurthy, I got it right. Uh, you. They, when, when you were talking about the Wisconsin law, I believe that that law was brought up in direct, uh, in, in direct counter to what happened, uh, and it was, uh, people talked about it on the, legisla- on the floor of the legislature, in direct counter to what happened when I spoke at University of Wisconsin at Madison, where he had a bunch of protesters who stood in front of the, spe- in front of the stage and obstructed the stage and then refused to leave. And when I asked the police, would they remove the protesters at a certain, they've been going for 15 minutes. I've, by the way, Personally, two things, just to preface. I have no problem whatsoever with people protesting my speeches. I do have a problem with people who won't actually let me speak. Uh, and number two, as far as all the talk about white supremacy, uh, I can speak from experience. Mr. Lawrence, your organization named me the number one target of anti-Semitism online last year. So I have a, I, I have a trophy at my house that said, number one hated Jew in America. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally familiar with, with the, the level of, uh, of vitriol that's, that's become common in our politics. But one of the things that's a problem, and, and I think we have to be careful about, is when we say leave it to the administrators, and then the administrators do what they did at UW, which is they, the police, I said to the police, will you remove these protesters? And the police said, we have been told by the administration that if we remove the protesters, we are to shut down the event entirely. So we can't remove the protest. We literally had to wait until they just got tired and walked out, basically. Uh, when, when that's the response of the administration, shouldn't there be some sort of repercussion for that? Because what I'm seeing is a heckler's veto that's taking place on campus. What I'm seeing is people who are not engaging in free speech designed to enrich the debate, but in order to shut down the debate. And there have to be some sort of ramifications for people who are actually committing Trespass. I mean, these are these are this. This is not a question of free, uh, everyone is trying to focus in on this on this term hate crime and hate speech. They, but the the important part of those phrases is not the first word. It's speech versus crime. So if there's a crime that's being committed, we're all in agreement. If somebody commits a crime and they're they're and they're speaking of an imminent threat to somebody, of course that's a crime. But that has very little to do with the hate and a lot more to do with the crime as to whether that's prosecuted because hate speech is not prosecutable, nor should it be policed by the campus. So the fact is that, that what, what we are seeing uh, is, is a conflation between speech and active attempts to obstruct in order to promote the obstruction by some administrators on a few college campuses. Can you speak to, to how time, manner, and place restrictions are being abused? So most obviously, uh, UC Berkeley did that with Ann Coulter, where they kept moving around her room, and they kept saying they didn't have rooms available. Uh, they said the same thing to me a week ago. There was some public outcry, and now they're offering some rooms, which uh, you know, I hope that that event goes forward. Uh, it's not rare. Uh, they, they do this a lot. Uh, it's it, a private university that did it. was DePaul University. I was threatened with arrest if I set foot on campus. I actually showed up there, and a, a security guard told me, if, if I'm, I asked him, if I move six inches forward, are you going to arrest me? And he said yes, and he had the sheriff of Cook County behind him. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's become a cover for ideological discrimination because if Ta-Nehisi Coates wants to speak on these campuses, there's not going to be any problem. The administrators will make certain that time, place, and manner restrictions don't get in the way. Uh, and this is why I say 
saying that the discretion of administrators is wonderful is all well and good, except that they very often are attempting to achieve a particular political end by using means that are normally legitimate. Uh, and uh, and that's that's definitely a dangerous thing. Uh, if, I, if you don't mind, I have a quick note on something uh, that, that I think it was um, Mr. Lawrence was saying earlier about uh, the damage that's done to students by various things that happen on campus, by, thre- by, uh, by threats of violence and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and obviously, everyone, I think, agrees that what happened to Taylor is, uh, is unacceptable. Uh, but one of the things that I think should also be pointed out is we have a lot of other students in the, in the crowd and administrators who spend an enormous amount of time pushing stuff like white privilege means that you must accept that you are subordinate in terms of your view because of identity. This also has some lasting damage with regard to First Amendment exercise and with regard to how people perceive the freedom of the country. And I understand that this is universally held belief among university educators uh, that we have to accept the the guilt of particular races uh, or particular sexual orientations for discrimination that's happened in the past. But when you teach a bunch of 18 and 19-year-old people this, uh, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be surprised when number one they go into hiding with their viewpoint, or number two they become frustrated. <coughs> it's it's an absurdity to suggest that you can tell people that their viewpoints are out of line because of their identity. At the same time, you're telling other people that their viewpoints are completely in line because of their identity, and that any assault on their senses must be protected or prevented uh, at any cost. Well, I would just like to point out in closing that the, the group. Uh, Young Americans for Liberty that is handing out constitutions on campuses all across the country has changed free speech restrictions on 25 campuses just by handing out this document, not by setting fires because they didn't like the speaker or throwing rocks through windows, but by handing out this constitution. And I am inspired that there are young people who are inspired by this document, and it should never be illegal to hand out this document. Well said, uh, Mr. Massey. Uh, real quick, Ms. Ms. Strassen, is Mr. Shapiro right? Are most of the anti-speech um, activities going on on campuses targeted towards conservatives and libertarians? The, certainly the well-publicized ones have been. Uh, and I, don't, I can't speak for campuses across the country, but I go back to an opening point that I made, which was best summarized in the title of a book by Nat Hentoff. Well, I, just, I just wanted to answer. I, I can't. We'll come back to that. But I just was, wanted to respond to Mr. Shapiro's sure. point. I mean, that's my understanding as well. And I, I'll be, Those are the well-publicized incidents, and it would be consistent with what surveys show about the prevailing beliefs on campus, that the um, majority of students have, are, are on the liberal end of the political spectrum, the majority of faculty members are on the liberal end find of that the shocking. spectrum. So they would be more likely to be offended shocking. by... Professor uh, Raskin, you're smiling.